Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. O'Neill was a practicing pediatrician, but after her daughter was diagnosed at age three with San Filippo syndrome, she turned her attention to driving research into the rare lysosomal storage disorder. Today, O'Neill serves as the chief scientific officer of Cure San Filippo syndrome, an organization she and her husband founded. It has since funded six and a half million dollars in research through more than 20 scientific projects and clinical trials. We spoke to O'Neill about San Filippo syndrome, her own journey from physician to advocate, and her efforts to craft a research agenda. Cara, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about San Filippo syndrome, your journey from physician to patient advocate, and the work you're doing to drive research in the condition. Let's start with your daughter, Eliza. How did she come to be diagnosed with San Filippo syndrome? Eliza was diagnosed um, at age three and a half. And, you know, in hindsight, of course, there were so many signs and red flags along the way. Um, However, there were a lot of things that are really quite common in childhood individually and things that could be explained away by other other aspects, Um, things like speech delay, um, lots of ear infections, an umbilical hernia, some toddler diarrhea, all of this type of stuff. But really around three, she started to veer from her peers and her development skills more so. Um, We we took her for an evaluation and she didn't necessarily meet criteria for therapies at that time. However, we went ahead and did them. Um, And then over the next six months, we took her back. And at that time, she was diagnosed with autism, which is actually quite common um, diagnosis and first diagnosis in children with San Filippo. How difficult is it generally to diagnose this condition? Diagnosing the condition itself is actually quite easy. The tests are, you know, well established. Um, The challenge is having doctors be aware of the condition to know to test for it, of course. And the average age of diagnosis is 
around five years of age. And that hasn't, studies have shown that hasn't changed in the last 30 years, despite education efforts. So we're really up against a big problem with diagnostic delay. Um, you know, and again, with these being kind of a culmination of a lot of common things in childhood, it is hard for um, doctors to tease that out between what's normal and what's not normal. Um, I would say that generally people who take care of young children are kind of ingrained with this wait and see approach, which is, you know, things will declare themselves if something's really wrong. Otherwise, they're just maybe on the slow end of the spectrum or it'll work itself out. And in this day and age of you know, genetic discovery, the science we have available to us, like that's just not appropriate anymore. We need to be really aggressive upfront when delays very first present and say, why is this happening? We need to do a medical workup. You were a pediatrician. Did you suspect an issue? Were you, you familiar with San Filippo syndrome? You know, when we got the diagnosis, I was sitting there, the genetic counselor was telling me the information. Um, you know, we had just received her autism diagnosis and shortly after this, you know, really explanatory diagnosis came, um, you know, I just, everything sunk inside of me, realizing from the nugget back in my brain from a board exam, you know, studying for that years ago, that this was part of a group of disorders, the MPS disorders, that was just going to be absolutely devastating. So that was the extent of my knowledge about it at the time was really just a line in a board exam. Um, you know, did I have suspicions that things were wrong? Absolutely, <laughs> along the way. But again, like I said, individually, they were kind of explained away. Um, you know, again, in hindsight, it, it was it's very clear what was going on. What exactly is San Filippo syndrome? San Filippo is a fatal genetic condition, and it's kind of a group of four different subtypes of the disease, and they all have mutations in one of the four different genes that encodes an enzyme needed to break down something called heparin sulfate, which is a glycosaminoglycan. And because children can't break down this, you know, ubiquitous molecule that's in all of our cells and, and necessary for life, we need a certain amount of heparin sulfate. But when it builds up in the body and the brain, um, it has particularly harmful effects on non-dividing cells, like in the nervous system, the central nervous system. And as this heparin sulfate accumulates, we get a cascade of all this other kind of nastiness that happens, which other genes get dysregulated, inflammation occurs, and you get secondary accumulation of the same types of molecules that we see in adult neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and other forms of dementia. And how does it manifest itself and progress? Well, if you're looking very, very carefully, signs of San Filippo really can be seen in the neonatal period. And many children experience early respiratory distress and they need a little bit of support after birth. Um, you know, later in infancy and toddlerhood, you start to see the delays in development, particularly speech, um, can be accompanied with hearing loss, which tends to be progressive up to a point. Um, they may have a large head, an umbilical hernia, 
um, and a big liver and spleen. And then over time, their facial features start to become more prominent, coarse with, you know, kind of prominent, thicker eyebrows and things like that. Um, you know, it then progresses with more severe developmental and behavioral aspects kind of in the middle stages of, of things. These children are extremely hyperactive. They have severe sleep disturbances. Um, many are diagnosed with autism even before the San Filippo diagnosis. But as things progress, they have um, deteriorating cognitive function, seizures, and loss of essentially all the basic skills, speech, walking, eating by mouth, and become fully incapacitated um, eventually. And what's the prognosis for patients today? Well, the reality is that for 99% of the patients living around the world with this disease right now, the prognosis is the same as it was when my daughter was diagnosed um, in, in that there are no approved therapies right now. But for the very few children that are, are lucky to be accepted into clinical trials, the future, I would say at this point, is unknown. And that is a huge positive. <laughs> Anything that's different from, you know, the suffering that is sure to occur is, is a real positive. And just having a chance at a different future is a gift to these families. You and your husband founded Cure San Filippo Syndrome, which has provided $9 million for more than 25 scientific projects and clinical trials. What's the research strategy? Is there some unifying vision to the work you fund? The unifying vision is really pushing the pipeline in translational research to get to clinical trials. Um, we just don't know what strategy is going to be effective for patients at different stages of the disease until we see how it plays out in, in, our, in our kids, in human beings. Um, you know, animal models are great, but they only can tell us so much. Um, so we really try to drive to get clinical trials up and running and you know, what we've learned along the way is a clinical trial is, is also only successful if you're measuring the right things or you're measuring things that have a chance to show change and that are important and impactful in the patient's life um, and are well suited for the patient population you're testing. So we've learned a lot about um, the gaps in clinical outcome measures um, and things that we can do to help um, shift that to to measures that maybe uh, better suit the patient population. How do you go about prioritizing projects? We, again, consider proposals based on their, their translational ability, um, but we don't put all our eggs in one basket. You know, we don't only fund work in gene therapy or enzyme therapy. We really, you know, take a holistic approach. And I think, for me as a pediatrician, you know, I always took that approach with my patients is they're not just you're here because your ear hurts and I'm only going to look at your ear today. It's okay. Every, every part of our body works together. We're not just a single body part. And so thinking about the disease in that way and that it's maybe not all about enzyme restoration. We may need ancillary therapies or combinations of therapies. So we look at um, 
the whole picture. Um, we fund things around gene therapy, stem cell therapies, substrate reduction um, ideas, um, you know, drug repurposing too. And drug, you know, drug repurposing ideas what led to um, a study, a clinical trial with Anna Kinra that's actually running right now that our foundation sponsoring. In April this year, you presented the first ever caregiver preference study for San Filippo syndrome to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Why did you decide to do this study? The the impetus to do that study really came about from a chance meeting that my husband was attending, a NORD meeting. My husband is the president of um, our foundation and organization. But he was attending a, a NORD meeting and ran into Dr. Celia Witten, who um, you know leads. Sieber at the FDA. And, you know, they got to talking and she said, do you have a, you know, a caregiver preference study? Do you have something that really shows us what's important to the patient population? And, you know, said no, but that sounds like a good idea. And, and, you know, that was, you know, a, a big voice in our ear, but, you know, we were hearing this throughout other patient organizations and, you know, in other places too. So it really, you know, pushed us to say, hey, you know, these outcome measures aren't really working for us. Patients are seeing results in trials, but they're not really coming out in the data. Um, you know, how can we, how can we support um, a, a change in what we're measuring? So that was the real impetus for that. The, the impetus to do that study really came about from a chance meeting that my husband was attending, a NORD meeting. My husband is the president of um, our foundation and organization. But he was attending a, a NORD meeting and ran into Dr. Celia Witten, who um, you know leads CBER at the FDA. And you know, they got to talking and she said, do you have a, you know, a caregiver preference study? Do you have something that really shows us what's important to the patient population? And, you know, said no, but that sounds like a good idea. And, and you know, that was, you know, a, a big voice in our ear. But, you know, we were hearing this throughout other patient organizations and, you know, in other places, too. So it really you know, pushed us to say, hey, you know, these outcome measures aren't really working for us. Patients are seeing results in trials, but they're not really coming out in the data. Um, you know, how can we how can we support um, a, a change in what we're measuring? So that was the real impetus for that. We found a really excellent scientific partner and the folks at RTI over in North Carolina, they do a lot of uh, patient preference, caregiver preference work. And they had actually worked with the Duchesne community um, in their caregiver preference work, which was really leading the way um, years ago around this concept. So we were excited to work with them. We also pulled together um, an advisory committee, which included um, a developmental clinician that ran clinical trials in San Filippo, um, some industry partners, and other patient advocates. One of the findings were that caregivers wanted regulators to include 
non-cognitive-based endpoints when evaluating therapies for children over two. Caregivers were focused on things like improving quality of life. What might those endpoints look like? Well, you know, I will say caregivers understand that there is a significant cognitive overlay in in a lot of the aspects of this disease. So they're, they're not ignoring the importance of impacting cognitive ability or you know, things like that. However, we do recognize that there, there is a point in which that may not be realistic to impact significantly. And so realizing that we understand that our kids still deserve to have a life without suffering as much as possible. So the things that they highlighted throughout the focus groups and the the broader, you know, quantitative survey we did, which surveyed people across 14 countries, um, you know, a couple hundred patient um, caregivers, were things like the ability to walk, the ability to eat by mouth, um, good, good, regular sleep, um, avoiding pain and distress, and a reduction in bowel movement issues. So pretty basic concepts, right? You know, you think, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Um, but these are not things that are really being looked at in clinical trials now. How did regulators react when they heard the feedback? It was great to present this data to the FDA. And in fact, we, we met with them at the start of the study to review our, our framework and what we intended to do because we wanted to, to again, you know, create a study that was going to be meaningful and, and impactful even at the regulatory level. Um, but they were quite positive and receptive to what we were telling them. Um, they you know, seem to be in agreement with with the points that were being made and, and listening to caregivers. What do you expect to happen from here? Do you, do you see this being incorporated into clinical trials going forward? Um, well, I can tell you, actually, things are happening now. And this study has impacted already um, the clinical trial design and the endpoints being used in a couple of different studies. Um, so we're excited about that. Um, one is the Anna Kinra study that I told you about. And another is a, a video observation study. We realized that, you know, there were some things that you just can't quite pick up sometimes in a survey. There's, there's a quality of movement or there's a quality of interaction. And those um, more subtle things are meaningful to families and meaningful to patients. Um, so we had to find, think of ways to capture that as well. But um, so those are some real, you know, concrete ways in which it's making a difference already. Um, but just prior to sharing our results with the FDA, the agency released their draft guidance on developing drugs for the treatment of Sanfilippo syndrome. You know, this study then allowed us to submit a collective response from key opinion leaders and patient advocacy groups, citing additional aspects from this study that were going to be critical to incorporate into the final guidance. So, you know, this study really just gave us scientifically valid insights into what we should be pursuing as treatment targets and also gave us a really important tool to advocate with. Your daughter, Eliza, was the first patient in a gene therapy trial. 
was there any hesitancy in having her go first, which I suspect meant she was given a lower dose of the therapy and it was a therapy that she'd only be able to be given once? Yeah, she she was very lucky to participate in the trial. And, and preceding that, she happened to be the first child in the natural history study at the same site. Um, honestly, we would have accepted nearly any risk at that point to offer her some chance at avoiding what we knew was, you know, terrible suffering to come uh, without a treatment. She, at, at the time she got treated, she was six and a half and she was declining in her skills and kind of, we felt like barely holding on to what she had. Um, so for us, there wasn't any time to spare. We couldn't say, oh, let's wait for a higher dose. And frankly, that's not how the trials work anyway. Um, you know, we knew a trial could be delayed at any point for any safety reason or anything could come up and, you know, maybe they wouldn't even get to the higher dose. So at that time, just so much was unknown. Um, so for us, no, there wasn't any hesitancy. Um, but to get to, I think the point you're making um, is about this larger concept of dose escalation in gene therapy. And that's very near and dear to my heart because I've lived it. Um, with my daughter. But I feel like there's some serious ethical issues there <laughs> that as a scientific community, society, we have to be thinking about. And, you know, I think about it in the sense of we're asking the most vulnerable people with fatal diseases and their parents to take the highest risks. And, and when I say risk, it's not just the risk of getting the therapy, but it's also the risk of never getting a therapeutic dose of the therapy or never, you know, and I realize when we start, we don't necessarily know what that therapeutic dose is. Um, but we have to be proactively thinking about these kids' future. I mean, that's what adults are supposed to do. We are supposed to protect kids. And I think that goes for anybody, you know, a patient, you need to be thinking down the road for them and being proactive and luckily, um, there are scientists out there who have found some immunomodulation protocols that particularly um, Dr. Byrne at the University of Florida, who have presented studies in which patients have been given this, this group of drugs that then don't develop antibodies to the viral vectors um, and potentially could receive uh, future dosing. So that's where we need to be thinking in my perspective and where we need to be driving um, advancements around gene therapy. How's Eliza doing? Eliza is, you know, she's doing pretty well. Um, again, you pointed out she did receive the lowest dose of the particular gene therapy she received and patients now receive about six times, five, six times the dose that she did. Um, she also was a bit older you know, in this disease, unfortunately, six and a half is considered old, which is, you know, hard to say. Um, we think that she she may have had some benefit and we we got some more time, more quality time. Um, with San Filippo, you know, the, the outcome measures are difficult. And because there is heterogeneity in the disease, like so many of these rare diseases, um, 
it's hard to have that crystal ball and know where you would be exactly without the treatment in, in some of these areas with a less well-defined natural history. Carol O'Neill, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Cure San Filippo Syndrome. Cara, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.